Blog Talk Radio. Everybody and welcome to Trundlebed Tales. Today we're going to be talking about Laura Ingalls Wilder and Rose Wilder Lane in San Francisco. But before we get to that, we have just a little housekeeping to do. And I just wanted to let anybody know if you wanted to call in and ask a question, you can do that at 714 242 5253. That's 714-242-5253. Or toll free 1-877-633-9389. That's 1-877-633-9389. And you can also stream it online. But if you're out and about or if you just want to have something you can carry around the house and listen to, feel free to call in even if you don't have a question, and that's a good way to listen, too. Now, normally here I give you the promos for the upcoming episodes, and while I have several speakers that are lined up and have agreed to talk, I haven't gotten any firm dates on a couple of them, and the one I was going to be sure to plug actually kind of fell through on me. So... Uh, You'll just have to kind of keep an eye out for upcoming episodes, and you can do that on my webpage, on my blog, or on Facebook and Twitter. And you can find me all those places under Trendlebed Tales. And I think that's about all the housekeeping for right now. So let's go ahead and uh, we're going to bring on my guest. Now, this is uh, somebody who I have known online for about 20 years, but I don't think we've ever met in person. So this is a, a treat for me, too. And I'd like everybody to meet. And I, I may, as I said, we've only known each other online, so if I I'm probably going to screw up the name because she sent me a helpful little hint, and sadly, I'm not really good at those. So, Trini Winninger, is that how I? It's Trini Winninger. Winninger. See, I told you, I told you I was (laughs) going to mess it up. That's fine. People mess up mine all the time, too. So, Oh, and we've got uh, several people in the, the chat room today, so it looks like we're having a popular topic. That's good. Wonderful. So uh, do you want to go ahead and first just tell us a little bit about yourself and how you got interested in Laura? Well, I'm a homeschooling mom, and I have a degree in history from Michigan's Oakland University. The last couple years I've been focusing on researching farm and food production history, but I've always enjoyed and always been interested in Laura's life ever since I read the books as a kid. Um, I've been to all the official Laura Ingalls Wilder sites, you know, the ones with the museums and the gift shops, (laughs) and I've been to many of the unofficial sites like uh, San Francisco, you know, searching for those Ingalls and Wilder paths. So uh, how did you decide to, to write the book? Well, people kept asking me over and over again about my trip to San Francisco and what I saw, because they knew I was a Laura Ingalls Wilder fan and a Rose Wilder Lane fan, they wanted to know what I thought was things that, you know, that shouldn't be missed on a trip. Um, anything with a Rose Wilder Lane, Laura Ingalls Wilder connection in San Francisco. And before we go any further, let's just go ahead and tell them the, the exact title of the book and how they can get a copy. Okay, the exact title is Rose Wilder Lanes, San Francisco. And if uh, number one, if you want to support the, one of the Loringles Wilder Museums, I am sending the rest of my first printings to the Loringles Wilder Museum in Walnut Grove. Um, I t- 
talk to Nicole today, and she's supposed to be watching for them this week. So they should have them about midweek, later this week. So if you wanted to go that route, you call them up and get the book from them. Or, of course, you can go through Amazon.com. And eventually, I hope to make it into an ebook format so that people who wanted it on their Nook or their Kindle could download it. I'm still teaching myself the new software for that, though, so give me a few, you know, maybe sometime this summer uh, I'll be able to work on that. So give me a little while and maybe I'll have it up as an ebook format. Well, we're always glad to support any of the Laura home sites, and that's always something that uh, I try and stress is people think that that the Laura home sites get money from the books, and that really isn't true at all. So buying from them directly definitely helps ensure that they will still be there for other people to go and visit and for you to go back to. So we're always glad when that's an opportunity. And Walnut Grove has such a nice gift gift shop with the new addition and everything. I'm sure they'll find a great place for it for your book. Yes, and I hope the money can, I know the money will be put to good use over there. They're doing a lot of wonderful things. Okay, so what did you do to research the book? Well, the big thing was I went to San Francisco in 1999. My friend Jody lives there, and we used William Holtz's Ghost in the Little House and the book West from Home to create like an outline of what we wanted to see and do while we were there. And then a few later, you know, a few years later, after the trip, I went to the Herbert Hoover Library Archives, and I spent several days going through Rose's old letters in her journals, mostly focusing on her time in San Francisco. Now, she did keep a bunch of journals, and she did keep uh, copies of her correspondence, but the majority of that is after 1918, after she left San Francisco. So trying to put together those days that she lived in San Francisco it is really hard trying to piece all that together. Well, it looks like you've done a great job finding stuff to talk about. And, yeah, it's the the one bad thing about Rose's letters, she did keep a lot of them, but they almost are like a series of inside jokes. If you know already what she's talking about, it makes sense. If you don't, sometimes it's a real struggle to figure out exactly who and what she means. So it, it's... A, a heroic task to take on. Yeah, she does do that. Um, so, so you got all this research and you went to San Francisco. It, it sounds to me like uh, Rose really loved San Francisco. Is, is that the impression you got from from the work? Oh yes, indeed. Uh, she did love San Francisco. She continued to mention San Francisco in diary entries, letters, even stories. San Francisco somehow worked its way in. Um, In a letter that she wrote in 1927, she said, there's never been a place that I love just as I love San Francisco. And even as late as 1951, she still considered herself an adopted San Franciscan, and she said she would never be disloyal to the Golden Gate. She wanted, you know, in fact, it, it, San Francisco meant so much to her that she wanted to share it with her mother. And the fair, the Panama Pacific Exposition, gave her the extra push and the extra income to get her mom to come visit her. And she lured her in with the prospects of stories, um, saying, hey, Mom, you can write about this when you get home. And uh, she also said that she would help her mom with her writing if she came to visit. She also paid her mom's way and paid her money for each week that she was away from the farm to make up for what she would lose by being away from the farm. Well, it, it what surprised me when I was going through the papers was how early Rose started to try and talk Laura into going. I kind of figured this was a you know, propose it and then let's do it. But she talked, it took several years for her to talk Laura around. So I'm sure the fair was a, a big part of it. Mm-hmm. The expense was huge. And then when you think about it, she and Almanzo didn't have much. They never really had much. So to spend 
that many days away from home would have been devastating a devastating loss financially. Yes, it would be. I mean, and I think that's something, you know, living on a farm is great, but it also means that you really can't get away that often. It is hard to get somebody to uh watch over things, and I think by then um it's just it's just a hard thing. I mean, uh, for instance, I always think about when they they have those you know, like Frontier House and those things, I always say, well, that's great, but I could never do something like that because I live close enough to it already that I just couldn't be gone from the farm that long. And I'm sure that was a major factor tying Laura in place, too. Mm -hmm. Yes, and the animals. It's hard to leave when you have animals under your care. And even, even they talked about, I think it was Mr. Nail, who they had come and help Omanzo while she was gone. So there's a lot of stuff that people don't realize. If you don't grow up with that sort of life, you don't realize how hard it is to get away. Yes. Yes, and and Rose certainly did talk about San Francisco a lot. In fact, she talked about it in the um, Who's Who and Why in the Saturday Evening Post, which which I think she just did to drive me nuts. But she was talking about her favorite things, and she says she loved San Francisco Kansas skies, Cedar Rapids at night, and Iowa City anytime. So I have been just, she has been mocking me trying to find her connections to Iowa City ever since. But So, so when I hear Rose in San Francisco, that's the first thing I think of is that article. <laughs> okay, so where did Rose live in San Francisco? She didn't just live one place, right? Oh, no. She, was, she moved around a lot in San Francisco. And one of the most famous houses is probably because it was designed by a famous architect by the name of Willis Pope, um, was the Vallejo House. And it was built on a piece of property that was thought to be unsuitable for buildings. For building. But um, this architect was able to design a building that went on this piece of property. She was only there for a short time, though, and my suspicion is that she rented it in preparation for her mom's visit. Uh, It's an extremely expensive neighborhood, and even then it was pretty pricey. So, um, yeah, she was only there for a short time. The other places she lived while in San Francisco were the Avon Hotel. She also shared a house on Telegraph Hill with her friend uh, Berta Horner, and she shared an apartment on Leavenworth with her friend Bessie Beatty. And... She lived for a short time in an apartment on Taylor Street, and uh, she lived in a little house in Sausalito, which is just north of San Francisco, and she also stayed with her friend Alice Danforth in Berkeley for a short time. So she was just all over the place, and and how long was this over? How long was she in San Francisco total, roughly? Um, goodness. I want to say 1912 to 1918. Um, I can check on that real quick, though. Oh. Well, I didn't mean to put you on the spot, but it seems like that's a lot of moving around over a fairly short period of time. It is. And, yes. and most people just mostly think of uh, the uh, Valero house because that's such a pretty iconic house. I think a lot of people uh, think about that mostly when they think about Rose, but she was all over the place. Mm-hmm. It is a beautiful house, and it's a beautiful area. And there's a stairway. Like if a person is going to visit the house on purpose, they definitely have to take the stairway next to the house and get the whole feel for that that up and down hilly walk. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, tell us a little bit about that neighborhood. It's kind of a, a famous area, and there were artists and things there too, right? Yes. Um, during that time, I'm trying to remember some of the stuff. The um remember it's been over a decade <laughs> <laughs> since I studied some of this stuff. But that Russian hill there was like a story that there were Russians that were buried there that something happened during some fur hunting exposition and then it became um you know a famous neighborhood and heavily populated. 
Well, uh, it it just it's an area too. I think that there's a walking path today. I think I found a guide online that takes you through the neighborhood. So it, it's certainly a well thought of kind of famous area, San Francisco. Mm-hmm. But I think uh, what Rose was um, probably most thinking of, though I think she liked the the life and the camaraderie and the friends and everything, she was mostly there to work. So that brings us to the San Francisco call bulletin and is uh is there um anything left to see of it today well the coal building is still there actually the call bulletin began uh, well actually started out at two different papers they were rival newspapers the call building is still there though it's been renovated quite a bit the bulletin unfortunately was torn down the area that it's was at in 1998 was just basically a flat area with trees. I don't know if they had any plans for it then, and I haven't followed up with it. But the two, they were two rival papers, and the bulletin's editor was Fremont Older. And Rose really, really, really liked Mr. Older. And I guess in some ways maybe she connected a lot with him, He was born in a log cabin in Wisconsin, and he actually worked his way up from apprentice printer to top managing editor of a leading paper in San Francisco. And he was quite a character in himself. He defended prostitutes. He tried to reform drunkards and criminals. He campaigned against civic corruption. He was actually kidnapped at one point in his life, and he was definitely one of the most controversial newspaper man in California. Now, ironically, he did get mad at the bulletin's owner, and in 1918 he went to work for the call, the rival newspaper. Um, Laura mentioned both newspapers in the book, uh, West From Home, and Rose was working under Fremont Older at the bulletin at that time, so she had assignments. Uh, from Fremont Older to work on. Now, Gillette was technically out of work, but while Laura was there, she talked about him having a couple assignments from the call, the rival newspaper. Um, Another thing that would be interesting to talk about is Gillette, because according to Rose's papers, they had separated by the time her mom was visiting but he was making appearances, and this is evident from the letter she wrote home. So it is still a mystery to me whether they were hiding the separation or if Laura knew and she just didn't talk about it in anything. <laughs> um, also, Rose wrote a story while Laura was there, and she actually mentioned it a couple times in her letter, so I thought it was kind of important to bring it up because she mentioned it once to Almanzo. And then she mentioned it again. And it was a story called Edmund Rowe, Manhunter. And she talked about how he went to dinner, sorry, he went to dinner with them while uh, she was visiting. And he told stories about his day as a burglar. He did high-class robberies, like jewelry theft. And he served his time more than once in the prisons. Um Now, at that point in time, though, when he was talking to Laura and Rose, he was straight, and he actually worked in the circulation department of the bulletin. And she mentioned that Edmund Rowe drug Rose's pearls that Laura actually brought to her, and that it was something that he was familiar with from his days of restringing and resetting stolen jewelry. So she really, you know, (laughs) I thought that was kind of important to her, to mention that, that she was hobnobbing with an ex-criminal. Okay, I'm not sure if you could tell I was gone, but I had a problem, and I'm back now. That was really <laughs> odd. Normally, it doesn't take me out for that long, but I apologize. Um, so we were talking about, uh, we were talking about um, the two newspapers. Mm-hmm. And um, that is also, I think, interesting, because I think it was really be- because of, of that newspaper work that Rose got the job writing 
the first biography of Herbert Hoover, which is why the Herbert Hoover Presidential Library is um, part of the having the Laura Papers in the first place, is because of her work in the newspaper and her kind of getting involved with the big wigs of the Republican Party in California through that. So I think uh, they just suggested her as somebody who might write the biography. So it all ties together. Yeah, and she often said that some of her best work was in the bulletin files. <laughs> <laughs> and she also, uh, the editor that that she de- uh, dealt with there, his house is one of the places in your book too, right? Right. Mm-hmm. Woodhills. And that is actually one of the places you had mentioned that you uh, wanted to know if there was any place where I felt a connection to Lauren Rose. Mm-hmm. And it would have definitely been, one of the places would have been his property. And his property is called Wood Hills, and it's now an open space preserve. And he would hold Sunday luncheons, and he'd invite writers and artists and ex-convicts to attend these Sunday lunches. So while Rose lived in San Francisco, she attended these luncheons. And she even visited Wood, Hill, Wood Hills when she returned. She, she revisited San Francisco in 1925, and that was one of the places she stopped. And really, it's easy to walk along the overgrown path and the stairways and the terraces and feel like you're walking in her footsteps. Well, that's always, I think, the most important thing about visiting these sites is they do, when when you get a spot that does make you really feel like you're there, like like Laura or Rose might be just right around the corner, that this is what they were talking about. So I'll definitely have to put that on my list if that's where you, you've, you've felt something like that. I had put in the chat room a question about what did people think of first when they were uh, thinking of Laura or Rose in San Francisco and... Uh, Judy Green says uh, she thinks of Western Home, eating scones, falling off a cable car. Uh, Laura Wessler says about the same. Uh, Lori from Ohio says she thinks of the Tower of Jewels. I so wish I could see it. And Judy Green adds, I found the Pioneer Mother in Golden Gate Park. It was really made me feel a part of it. And then she also wanted me to ask if you had... Uh, an opinion about Rose's relationship with Jack London and was her biography of him uh, accurate or was it really as highly fictional as some people claim? That is one area that I haven't studied. I have not read that biography. And so I I can't answer that question. Okay. Uh, Now there's, there's a lot of stuff that Rose dabbled in and a lot of it is it walks the border between <laughs> being crazy and being true. So with her, <laughs> with her, I mean, she's such a character that it's it's hard to say. And really, that's something that I haven't dabbled in. <laughs> okay, I, I the one thing that I know about it that was kind of an aha moment because actually I, I haven't read the, the biography either, though I should. I've been working more on collecting Rose than on reading her. Um, but she had, when I found out that after Jack London died, his widow, the one who made the big fuss and said it wasn't right and all that, just happened to be uh, starting dating Frederick O'Brien, who was the guy who did White Shadows and yeah. who Rose had had a horrible fight with because she said she basically wrote the book and he, as a ghostwriter, which I think is probably true, and he said that she was just a secretary telling his stories once it was a big success. So I think that could really impact how she reacted to this, what was basically at its best an unauthorized uh, biography, but I think some of the vehemence behind it was um, was probably coming from that. Uh, Rose had said that that was one thing that I have seen in, in some of her letters and things is that she was so hurt that so many people took his side in, in the fight. And I think that uh, Mrs. Uh, Jack London was definitely one of them. And that's so I always bear that in mind when I, I hear about that because I think that's, 
sort of a telling detail. Then again, it could just be garbage. I don't know. I haven't read it. <laughs> okay, so put that on your list, Sarah. <laughs> yeah, it's definitely on my list. So for the sake of those people who might be listening who are more casual Laura fans, do you want to just sort of say what West from Home is since we talked about it a little bit? Sure. The uh, West from Home is actually uh, compiled letters that Lauren Wilder wrote home while she was visiting San Francisco to her husband, Elmanzo. And there's actually a couple letters in there from Rose, the daughter, also. So these letters describe things that she saw, things that she did, and the people that she met while she was there. And she asked Almanzo to save them because, at you know, at home she was writing newspaper articles and she thought maybe some of the stuff she sent home she could reread them and make, you know, some articles or something out of these letters so that she could publish them in the Missouri Royalist. Now these letters ended up being published put together in the book form after her death. And um, basically the letters take place in San Francisco during the time of the 1915 Panama Pacific International Exposition, which everybody just called the fair. So this fair lasted 288 days, and 43 states and territories and 25 foreign nations were represented, along with new innovations um, in technology and industry, and this included our culture, which, of course, Laura was truly interested in. So it really is kind of a nice book. And uh, even though it's available in uh, Little House Traveler, I'd really recommend people getting their own copy of it. I don't think the edition really matters, one or the other. Uh, but it's uh, just a really nice book, and it's one that they did. Uh, somebody put some love and care in, as far as writing some forewords and afterwards, and hunting up things, and adding some uh, very nice pictures of the fair and and various things ar- around there that I think really kind of add to it. And then they add a story, one of the stories that Laura actually did write, based on. Um, the visit to the fair, the magic and plain foods is at the end, and some recipes of things that were at the fair. And, you know, we always love to find recipes in books. So uh, if you are at all a Laura fan and you don't have a copy of Western Home yet, what are you waiting for? Get a copy. There's been around for years, and it, it's not expensive. You can get them all over the place. Yes, I agree. So... Since I mentioned a little bit there about the World's Fair, and who doesn't love the World's Fair, what traces are left that you can see today? Well, the biggest thing that would be left over from the fair is the Palace of Fine Arts. And it's actually the only structure that remains in the original location from the fair. Uh, And like most buildings at the fair, this one was made to be temporary. So eventually it started falling apart, and it uh, was fall- basically falling into pieces. So in 1960s, the city of San Francisco, uh, it started with like a, a donor who donated, I think, something like a million dollars to help rebuild the or reconstruct this building. And it basically the building was saved from the fair because the people of San Francisco loved it so much. And it's there still in the original position, and it houses the Exploratorium in San Francisco. The other thing, there's actually a couple other things that you can see that are smaller from the fair. The Pioneer Mother that Judy Green mentioned in the posting, and that's in Golden Gate Park now. Now, Laura was fascinated by the details of the statue, and she called it wonderful and so true in detail. She wrote about the exposed shoe and how it looked large and heavy, and she said, I swear it had been half-sold. So it's really easy to assume that because that pioneer, you know, that was a pioneer, I, I think she felt the connection with her. The other smaller items would be in Sausalito, which is just a short drive from San Francisco. In the downtown waterfront area, there's a fountain, 
and there's two 14-foot tall elephant lampposts, and they used to be in the court of the universe at the fair. Well, it really, I, I think a lot of us really don't have a good grasp on what it was really like to do, be to go to a World's Fair because um, they were, you know, quite temporary, as you describe, uh, but they also were, I just think, huge, totally engulfing, bigger than a state fair. And I have a hard time wrapping my, my mind about how, how big they they were, just any of them, but the, I think they just are an all-engulfing in, experience, and there were so many different things. I mean, Laura and Rose go to the fair, I mean, how many different days, and, and pretty much every day there's something new and something different to see. So I, I don't know that there's, even though they still have world fairs, I don't think they're quite the experience that they used to be. Right. I was so excited when uh, Silver Dollar City said they were going to try and turn their kind of ride area into like a World's Fair, and I was very disappointed when I saw what they actually did because they just kind of put World's Fairy names on rides that you'd get anywhere. I was very disappointed. I wanted one of those uh, those uh, Ferris wheels with the actual train car-sized cars that would go around or something cool like that, but not so much. <laughs> And once in a while, you will see a survivor building like the Palace of Fine Arts. And, you mean, and if you've been to the sort of museum campus there uh, on Lake Michigan in Chicago, a couple of them have survived. But these were buildings put up to look better than they actually were. So it, it's always interesting to see what's left of a fair. But um, I believe there's something else about the World's Fair that's still around, and that is the scone mix that Laura talks about. Do you want to? Well, yeah, the scones. Yep. Okay. Now, the one that I mentioned in the book is Fisher's Scones. They offer a premix. Now, I haven't tried the Fisher's brand. When I was in San Francisco, we did buy scones, though, at a local bakery, and we actually ate them on our ferry boat ride out to Alcatraz. That was just one of our many Laura Ingalls Wilder moments that any Lauren Goldwalder nerd would understand. <laughs> there were other companies that offered scones, and Nancy Cleveland, one of the best Lauren Goldwalder historians, pointed out that the scones that Laura ate could have been possibly from Berry Flower Company. Berry Flower Company would later come under the General Mills brand. And using the description of the booth in the food products building and comparing recipes, she felt that that was possibly a good, uh, what would you call it? She pointed a good out match? That, <laughs> that that could have been a possibility. And then another one would possibly be Quaker Oats, because Quaker Oats was making oat scones. Um, but for those who want an easy way to experience the scones that were at the fair, Fisher's was there, and they do still offer the original scone mix that you can buy and make at home. Uh, and, of course, the funny thing, <laughs> Rose was very, very concerned about how many of these scones Laura was eating at the fair. And, of course, everybody loves the letter where she wrote home to her dad and said, um, I should tell you, Mama Best is growing fat. And she mentioned how <laughs> Laura would eat, like, two scones without a quiver, she said. And then one day she even ate three. And she talked about <laughs> how they were just loaded thick with butter and jam. <laughs> so I think that's one of the favorite letters from anybody who who reads the story. It is a great letter. Uh, and I did actually buy some of the mix, and you can buy it off of Amazon. And uh, one thing that really threw me is I looked at, at the cost and went, oh, that's a lot for a box of pre-mix, but what the heck, it's Laura. I'll try it once. <laughs> And what I didn't understand was that wasn't the cost per box, even though it looked like it in the picture. That was the cost per case. So I got a case of this. <laughs> and it's lasted me quite a while. <laughs> but uh, oh. if you would like that, that that is available. And per case, it really doesn't cost that much. <laughs> so let's see. So you mentioned riding out to Alcatraz, and what? why don't you talk about that a little bit? 
Well, Alcatraz was a military prison when Laura was there, so of course she couldn't go riding out to Alcatraz like I could. But um, eventually Alcatraz became the maximum security prison that mostly famous for because it held criminals like Al Capone. It is now a museum, so it has become like a major tourist spot for anybody who's visiting San Francisco usually goes out to Alcatraz. And Laura did mention it in her writing. She talked about seeing it. She also wrote about the foghorn that would cry out at regular intervals. Well, it's it certainly had an interesting story. I mean, we all think of Alcatraz as a prison, but it went from everything from being an, an army camp to being the site of uh, Native American rights demonstrations in the 70s, and now it's sort of more of a just a passive national park and the setting of a sci-fi TV show. So it's certainly a lot to to see and take in. Um, if let's see where are we and then since we're out on the water uh, while one of the things that Laura experienced for the first time was to get to see the ocean for the first time and I certainly thought of that the first time I saw the ocean I was on the other side of the country at the Atlantic Ocean but I didn't let that bother me <laughs> but if somebody did want to actually see the ocean where Laura saw the ocean can they do that Yes, supposedly she saw the ocean for the first time at Land's End. And actually Land's End, Ocean Beach, Cliff House, Sutro Heights, all that area is within the same area, and they're relatively walkable. And, of course, this is the area that Laura decided she was going to wade in the ocean, and she describes how much fun she had in the letter home. And I love the description of this one because she says that they went out to meet the waves. A little one rolled in and covered our feet. The next one came and reached our ankles. And just as I was saying, how delightful, the big one came and went over our knees. I just had time to stretch my skirts up and save them, and the wind back, and the wave went back with a pull. It's so an, I it's, know, huh? No, I you, think it is an interesting quote, yeah. So I, I just had to say, I, I can honestly say that when I did this very same thing, this very same thing happened to me. <laughs> <laughs> but um, some of the other stuff she described, like up the hill from Ocean Beach are the gates of Sutro Heights, and she described the lion statues there, and those lion statues are still there. And also nearby is the Joe Monument, and Laura in her letters described a herring sloop, a Norwegian herring sloop, and it was used by Roald Amundsen when he navigated through the Northwest Passage. And she saw it, and she said it was battered and worn, but strong-looking still. And although the ship was returned to Norway in the 1970s, that monument now sits in its place. So you can actually go and see the monument of the ship that Laura saw. Well, that is neat. And I don't think Laura actually talked about Cliff House, but it's right there too, right? Right. Mm-hmm. If you're on Ocean Beach, you'll see the Cliff House. <laughs> Which is uh, now a national park. It was kind of a, a famous restaurant, and they keep redoing it. And I think even the Park Service, at least they were, I, I saw that they were going to. I don't know if they actually got it done or not, but they were remodeling it again. But it's uh, there's been a restaurant there since the time Laura was there. So if you're at Ocean Beach, go on up to the Cliff House and and uh, get something yeah. to eat, too. It's on my list, anyway. And even though that that Cliff House in particular has been remodeled, it would have been the one that Laura saw, because the Cliff House has been rebuilt. I think it was built in, um, like, late 1800s, and it was eventually destroyed uh, by... A fire, and then uh, the other one survived. Like they rebuilt it. The second one survived the earthquake, but then it burned down. Like the year after the earthquake, <laughs> very weird. But th- then they built a third one, and so that would have been the one Laura saw, and that's the one that's been there since. Even though they have, you know, added on and changed things. Well, so 
an even better reason to go and look at it. Mm-hmm. Now, you've got a lot of sites in your book. If you were going to just go to, say, three of those, which ones would you pick? If you're, if somebody had, like, just a day in San Francisco and they wanted to see the best stuff. That's not a fair question, Sarah. <laughs> <laughs> you know, really, it would depend on the person and maybe their interests. I, I suppose, though, if you're in San Francisco and you've never been there and you don't even know when you'll make it back, I would probably stick to some more of the touristy spots that have the Loring's Water, Rose Water Lane connections, but that's just me. Um, that would include Ocean Beach, Alcatraz, and the Palace of Fine Arts. So in doing so, they would be close enough to see some of the other sites because at the Cliff House, uh, or at Ocean Beach, they see the Cliff House, Sutra Heights, and possibly if they were going out to Alcatraz, they might be taking the ferry from like the Fisherman's Wharf area. So Laura mentions Fisherman Wharf, and they might possibly have time to hit the cannery building, too, to see that. Okay. Well, uh, Laura is known for her description. Was there any observation she made about San Francisco that you found was particularly apt or really stuck out for you? Hmm. Well, she seemed to be fascinated by the water and the boats. And I think she probably described those more in a sensual way than anything else. She thought the ocean was beautiful and wonderful. And I have to smile at her description. We Kind of going back to when she waded in the ocean, and she said that the water tingled her feet and made them feel good all the rest of the day. And just to think, she wrote, the same water that bathed the shores of China and Japan came clear across the ocean and bathed my feet. Now, I like that. Despite that, though, uh, even though she said that San Francisco is beautiful, she always said she enjoyed the country more. So I guess that that and perhaps my interest in farming history draws me to the description she put in her letter about Santa Clara Valley. She talked about the orchards, and she described the trees being, she called it, in mathematical precision. She said they were all trimmed the same shape and form, and the ground was smooth and bare beneath them. She described the ditches for irrigation and how they'd let the water in, and it would run around the feet of the trees. On the same trip, she saw dairy farms, chicken ranches, and she talked about how the grape growers were worried about the threat of prohibition and how it would affect their business. And I think a lot of this helped confirm her love for Rocky Ridge, her own farm, and for the position that she and Almanzo were in. Well, uh, to sort of totally change subjects from that, because I did go through and, and reread your book in, in preparation for this, and one of the things that you you talk about that, that struck me is you talk about that Laura bought an ear spoon for Almanzo in Chinatown, and that you can still buy ear spoons, which... If you had not pointed that out, it probably wouldn't have made my to-do list, but now it's on there. <laughs> so did you buy an ear spoon for your Laura collection? Well, I did buy one, but it wasn't for my collection. I actually bought one for a friend, um, my friend Richard. We became good friends after we met on a Laura Ingalls Wilder study tour. And in the past, he surprised me with some, like, Laura Ingalls Wilder, Rose Wilder Lane-themed gifts. So... This became a surprise for him. So it became my my quest to find an ear spoon in Chinatown. And I found one. <laughs> well, it's, it sounds like a worthy challenge to me. Now, <laughs> now back to the book. There's uh, quite a few pictures in here. Are these ones that you took, or where did you get them? Uh, most of them either I took or my friend Jody took. And the old there's an old photo at the beginning of the book of the Cliff House, and that's actually a real vintage photo I bought from an antique store. And um, I used that for the, the second printing for the cover to the old vintage photograph. So uh, have you f- f- uh, followed up since you finished the book? Was there anything that you you wondered about when you started the book and now have answered or 
has it made you go back to San Francisco or or was this just a one shot thing? I want to go back to San Francisco. Uh, maybe when my daughter is a little bit older, we can go together. I haven't had, uh, I haven't, like, I have several pages of notes of things that I want to see or do when I go back. Because originally when I went, uh, it was before even going to the Herbert Hoover Library and researching. And there were some things that I really needed to research further. And maybe eventually I can make an updated version too. <laughs> Well, I hope so. I always like additional editions of, of books with more information. That's always a good thing. Uh, so, let's see. Got just under 15. I was just checking the time. We've got uh, about 14 minutes left. It always goes so quickly when we do these things. It does. So, uh, the other thing uh, that you've done besides the book on uh, San Francisco is you've done uh, brochures on name cards and picture buttons. Did you want to mention a little bit about that? Uh, those are basically things that I just did for gifts. Uh, I do little little things here and there concerning Laura, but uh, I don't know <laughs> what there is to mention on it other than the name cards I researched a little bit about how they were printed and why they were popular. And the picture buttons were mentioned in the Little House series. And that was basically just researching the picture buttons when they were popular and how they were used on clothing. And one of the things that, of course, is in my Laura collection is the there's a, a train button and uh, I've got several of those that I've gotten in my Warring with Wilder collection. <laughs> okay. Well, you said you hadn't read the uh, the uh, Jack London biography. Have you read any of Rose's stuff other than that, other than her letters? Oh, goodness. <laughs> I I read the correspondence between Rose and Jasper Crane, which is called... The Lady and the Tycoon. I read the correspondence between Rose and her friend Dorothy Thompson, which, can you remember the title of that one for me? Um, <laughs> it's like something letters, Dorothy Thompson, and then it has a date. I oh, yeah, I I know which one you mean. Um, this is what I get for putting people on the spot. <laughs> um, let's see. Well, go on to the next one. I'll find it. I know I will. And I've read some of her political literature because uh, she was a libertarian, and later on in life she wrote booklets and pamphlets and a lot of things that expressed her political views at the time. Also, another one that kind of focuses a bit on her time, her very brief time, living in Florida with her parents with the faces at the window, which was sort of a weird, twisted mystery. Like, you don't want to read it before you're going to bed. Um, no, you don't. I, I did that piece for a speech contest once, and it is extremely creepy. <laughs> Some of the bulletin articles she wrote, I have, of course, read those. She would read she would write okay. a lot about It was Dorothy Thompson and Rose Wilder Lane, Forty Years of Friendship, Letters nineteen twenty one to nineteen sixty. There we go. That's what I was trying to remember. Forty years of friendship. Yep. It's one and, of the Bill Holtz Holtz ones. Mhm. And so um let's see the oh the other thing I was talking about was the bulletin articles. She has a lot of interesting things in there. She would write about a lot of times it would be tragic love stories. You know about young youth and things happening, and they weren't happy endings, of course, not with her. And diverging roads, which was what eventually became the basis of Roswell Lane, her story, which was put together by Roger McBride, and he used diverging roads, her story, and he changed the characters around 
in the story. And there were a few other things he changed in there, too. I just can't remember because it's been so long. Mm-hmm. And used that as sort of a quasi-biography for Rose. Yeah. That's one of the unfortunate things. But, yeah. Uh, I think Diverging Roads, though, in and of itself, is a good story. Yes, and, it is. Uh, probably one of the better ones Rose did. I always think Rose's stuff is best as if she's the main character <laughs> because I, I don't think Rose was very good at um, being empathetic with people. I think she kind of had her view of how things were and that was just sort of how she thought the world was. And that's I think, shows in her writing. So I, I always say if Rose is in it as the main character, it's going to be a lot better than if, if it wasn't. But that's probably just my prejudice. <laughs> um, she, does, she does write a lot of freaky stuff. And I, I'm trying to remember there was another one that she wrote that was, in the end, I think the woman committed suicide. And But we know Rose had her own issues. <laughs> Yeah. So, so you know, you kind of think, wow, you know, maybe some of this she was actually feeling. Yeah, I think that's probably true. I think she probably did work out stuff in her fiction. But I think a lot of writers do that. Mm-hmm. All right, I'd asked our chat room, what was your favorite photo from West from Home? And Lori from Ohio says she liked the fairy building uh, and the pictures of Laura and Rose. Judy Green liked the clock tower on the, uh, I'm sorry, it just scrolled down on me. The clock tower on the ferry building, and uh, she had taken a photo of it about 10 years ago when she got home. The clock was at the same time as it was in Westrom Home, and she hadn't tried to plan it that way. Um, And so... That looks like it was the best answer from that. Then I asked them if they'd had a scone, and it sounds like they're really planning on having scones and E in Mankato this summer. So uh, I think I think you started a thing. So uh, one thing that I don't think we we touched on yet uh, was how did you get interested in Laura in the first place? The original reason is the books themselves. My parents were divorced, and my dad was dating a school teacher. And among the books that she let me read were the Little House books, because I would visit you know, her house. And that's when Laura's family sort of became, uh, you know, my, secret, my second family, <laughs> I guess you could call it. And... Really, that is where it ended until I got into college. And Little House on the Prairie television show was like on the one of maybe three channels I could possibly get in because I couldn't afford cable. And I would watch it, and I kept thinking, that's not in the book. That wasn't in the book. So it made me reread the books. And <laughs> I started seeking, you know, the real life. And that's where I met all of the other Laura fans online, and it went from there. Well, I I think there are a lot of people who sort of view Laura's family as their own, and I I know I always think of them that way, and I'm sure that they would probably just be appalled as I go casually calling them Ma and Pa, but (laughs) (laughs) that's how I think of them. So what is your next big Laura fandom project that you have on the horizon that you would like to go, your life goal that you haven't crossed off yet? You know, it's really quite open. I don't know because I've been to most all the places and all the museums and I've waited in Plum Creek and Trout Creek and the Pacific Ocean and all the places they've mentioned. So I don't really know. It's just... Wherever it takes me, I guess. (laughs) If I'm in an area, I'll go see it. Do you have uh, some project, something that Laura did in the books that you'd like to learn how to do? 
Um, I think I've done all that too. <laughs> I hate to sound like that, but I I pretty much tried it. <laughs> I even okay. raised my own chickens. <laughs> Well, I'll tell you one thing that was a a big disappointment for me was when I found out that Laura raised leghorn chickens because they they have white eggs, and we always raised brown eggs, and I was just so thoroughly disappointed because I wanted to have chickens just like Laura's, but the white eggs just aren't as good. Well, and the leghorns are obviously a hybrid bred to specifically lay eggs and be good egg layers. But I think, Laura, I think in, we can tell that she was always looking for better ways to increase production. Uh, I, I can just tell in some of her writing that she was always on top of things. She wanted to know what the latest technology was. Yes. So it applies to farming, too. <laughs> Yes, I think that is definitely true, that she always did try and find out what the latest was. And um, one thing, when I was at uh, What Cheer Flea Market one time, I was just kind of going through their random things, and I found a brochure for how to move a spring from the University of Missouri Extension Service, and it's exactly what Laura describes, and so we moved the spring. So I think she was also checking in with the extension agents, keeping up on what the current research was, making sure there was anything that they could take in, um, that they could take back to the farm and apply. I think that she was a, a very uh, modern with it farmer on in that regard. I think so too, and possibly if she was. Still alive today, some people would be following her on Twitter or Facebook <laughs> trying to find out what she's doing, and they would apply it to their farm. Probably. I, I just really, I always love that description one of her neighbors gave of her when they were asked to describe her. They said that she got eggs in the winter when nobody else did. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> and I think that's just a terrific description of Laura. Mm-hmm. So. We are just about out of time. Was there anything else that you wanted to talk about, or uh, do you want to just go ahead and, and give another clear plug of the book again, where it is and where they can get it? Well, um, again, they can find it online, and this morning I did open up a Facebook page for it because I thought people might be interested in learning about the links uh, that I may have mentioned during the time we were talking. So they can look for that. But uh, one of the things that always sticks with me is that even though Laura enjoyed her trip, she was always homesick. She was always worried about the farm and her chickens. And she always said that she couldn't imagine doing anything else. And at one point in time, she said that she would be better satisfied just to raise chickens. And she intended to do some writing that would count, but she wouldn't work like Rose had done at writing. And I think it's important to point out that this was something that she wrote many, many years before penning the Little House books. And indeed, that writing counted, but despite becoming a famous author, she was still a small-town chicken farmer. Yeah, I think I think she always was to some extent, but she certainly made a lasting impression on a lot of people. So I'm, I'm really glad that you could come on today, and I think we uh, enjoyed it. And tell me... Tell me the correct pronunciation in your name one more time just because I know I'm going to screw it up. That's fine. It's Trini Winninger. Trini Winninger. Mm-hmm. See, it, it won't stick. It just won't. <laughs> and thanks for having me on today. I oh, I was very glad you could come on. And uh, I hope that uh see you around and maybe you'll make it to Laura Palooza sometime or something. <laughs> yep, maybe a few years down the road. So. Uh, And with that, it is pretty much time to go ahead and start the theme music. I'll see the rest of you around. Remember to check back on Facebook and Twitter and on my website and my blog for the next episode, which sadly I don't have scheduled yet, so you'll just have to check back and see. And with that, let's go ahead and end out the day. Thank you.
Lucky Land slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.